Sometime back, a friend sent me an email with a story that illustrates in a small way the importance of prenuptial counseling. Let me share it with you. It's called The Secret of a Happy Marriage. There was once a man and woman who had been married for more than 60 years. They had shared everything. They had talked about everything. They had kept no secrets from each other, except that the little old woman had a shoebox in the top of her closet that she had cautioned her husband never to open or ask her about. For all of these years, he had never thought about the box. But one day, the little old woman got very sick, and the doctor said that she would not likely recover. In trying to sort out their affairs, the little old man took down the shoebox and took it to his wife's bedside. She agreed that it was time that he should know what was in the box. When he opened it, he found two crocheted dollies, doilies, I'm sorry, two crocheted doilies and a stack of money totaling $25,000. He asked her about the contents. When we were to be married, she said, my grandmother told me the secret of a happy marriage was to never argue. She told me that if I ever got angry with you, I should just keep quiet and crochet a doily. The little old man was so moved he had to fight back tears. Only two small doilies were in the box. She had only been angry with him two times in all those years of living and loving. He almost burst with happiness. Honey, he said, that explains the doilies. But what about all of this money? Where did it come from? Oh, she said, that's the money I made from selling, selling the doilies. Of course, a tactic like that may not solve all your marriage problems, but it could help to avoid some unpleasant confrontations. My parents taught me as a child that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and it's become obvious to me that a great many problems that arise in marriage could have been avoided if the husband and wife had received adequate orientation prior to joining their lives in the solemn bonds of matrimony. I think now of a family that went with us to Argentina, and my wife and I and our children went there in 1959. We traveled together. We moved to the same city together and worked together for quite a while. I remember that he told me that he met his wife in a bar. A week later, they were married. They were both converted later, were very active soul winners, had two lovely girls. Within a year and a half after arriving in Argentina, he left his family and ran off with the maid. I wonder how much he could have been helped 
if he'd waited a while and gotten some good orientation before he got married. In my memories, I think of a lovely family in our congregation on the outskirts of Buenos Aires, Argentina. Pedro and his wife have been married now more than 25 years and have grown children. Years ago, when they first became seriously interested in each other, they asked me to give them orientation concerning the possibility of moving toward marriage. We met in my office on several occasions, and we talked about many facets of courtship and marriage. I suggested to them a variety of matters that they should talk over together, guidelines for their conversations, and issues to avoid such as petting and excessive romantic involvement. We anticipated together such matters as relationships with their parents, raising children, managing the finances of the family, their honeymoon, their involvement in church, etc. Within a brief time, they were convinced they should join their lives in marriage, and I had the joy of officiating at the wedding. Since then, both have expressed to me their sincere gratitude for those talks, for the guidelines and the many suggestions and exhortations I gave them. It has been a matter of great joy and satisfaction to my wife and to me to see their progress over the years. They credited their joy in marriage to the orientation they got before marriage. I could only wish that I might have had the opportunity to counsel others who came upon bad times and finally decided to break off their marriage, largely because they'd made so many mistakes they could not find their way back to a wholesome relationship. I don't think anyone in his right mind expects marriage to be the panacea we read about in children's novels. You know, they lived happily ever after. It certainly but it certainly helps to prepare for the difficulties and surprises that most of us face. When two adults join their lives in marriage, they face a formidable task of learning and unlearning, of adaptation, of handling individual quirks, of facing up to unrealistic expectations, of dreams and fantasies, of discovering that romance is not everything. We cannot expect that simply because we draw the lines clearly and declare with emphasis that marriage is for a lifetime and that divorce is wrong, that we are thereby going to convince them, those who have an unhappy marriage, that they should stick together. Something more is needed. My conviction is that we need to do everything possible to help those who fall in love to understand that they must build their marriage upon something much more stable than their changing emotions. Years ago, I read something by Dietrich Bonhoeffer about marriage that made a great impression on me. He wrote this in a wedding sermon for his niece, and I quote, just as it is the crown 
and not merely the will to rule that makes the king. So it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of marriage above the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. I hope that's clear. I think it's most important for understanding and for us to understand that love is not what sustains marriage. It's marriage that sustains love. I'm going to get back to that in a moment. It was a generally accepted but erroneous concept in our day that love constitutes the basis for marriage. When we ask young people why do they want to get married, they'll almost invariably answer, because we love each other. That idea is due largely to the great influence of Romanticism over the past several centuries, especially in the Western world, and to the eroticism and hedonism of our own generation. One of its most common expressions is, you have a right to be happy. How many of you know that's not in the Bible? Imagine if Jesus had lived by that philosophy. The scriptures make it very clear that for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. Joy and happiness in the Christian life is not something you seek after. It's something that comes out of a deep commitment to God, an alignment with his perfect will. Another false idea is if it feels good, do it. Once you've swallowed that philosophy, you can reject anything that does not bring instant gratification. We've largely lost the will to suffer. I was so grateful yesterday when Dr. Cook said that one of the purposes of marriage is suffering or something like that. That was, I think, the general idea. I think that's so important. We learn in suffering, but we can learn no other way. We learn patience. We learn compassion. We learn mercy. We learn kindness. Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. That's from Hebrews. We've largely lost the will to suffer, to put up with anything unpleasant, regardless of the ultimate gain. And I can say without the fear of contradiction, every couple will face situations in marriage that certainly are not pleasant. Of course, love is a very important ingredient of marriage, but it's not the basis for its existence or its continuance. Falling in love may eventually lead two persons to the decision to get married. But marriage cannot last when it's based simply upon a natural attraction. Listen to this. God could not establish such an important institution 
is marriage on something so unstable as our emotions. Our sentiments may go astray for many reasons. Friction in the relationship, unkind treatment, the discovery of faults in the marriage partner, or even finding another person who is more interesting or appealing. After a few months of married bliss or blisters, too many come to the conclusion we don't really love each other anymore. Why should we continue to fake it? In truth, much of what is called love is only selfishness in disguise. Romantic or erotic love seeks its own satisfaction. Whether conscious or unconscious, the partner becomes the object of one's personal gratification. For this reason, it is an inadequate foundation for marriage. I've had a lot of opportunities to counsel people who are planning for marriage. And one of the things I always tell the man is, I want you to keep this in mind. You should live for and love your wife in such a way that every day he's thankful for having married you. And I tell the woman, live with and contemplate your husband and bless him. Seek his goodness, his love, his, his uh, increase. So that every day he thanks the Lord for having married you. One of the most significant reasons for prenuptial counseling is the need to focus on marriage as a lifelong commitment of the will to work at the relationship so as to make it stable and satisfying for both parties. I've heard too many whose marriage hit the rocks say that they had not had good luck in their marriage. Marriage is not a question of luck, but of serious commitment, the will to love and be devoted to each other. Romantic feelings are wonderful. I think one of the most marvelous things about human beings is, is the uh, love of God in giving us such wonderful feelings. Who doesn't enjoy the feelings of romance? I remember when I fell in love with the one who's now my wife of 53 years. I couldn't keep from smiling. My, my face hurt every day from all the smiling. My brother and my sister, my father and my mother would kid me because I always had a smile on my face. I was delighted. I'd met the one who seemed to me to be the most appealing person I've ever met in my life. 53 years have not changed that conviction. Romantic feelings are wonderful, but we need something more than feelings to live together in harmony year after year. I'm going to suggest to you a number of topics that should be dealt with at some length in our prenuptial counseling sessions with couples interested in the possibility of marriage. Please keep in mind that these things can hardly be dealt with adequately 
in a single half-hour session. I am persuaded that we need perhaps as many as 10 hour-long sessions with those who are planning to be married. My experience in this regard assures me that it is time well spent. Just recently I concluded 10 sessions of over an hour with a young couple who are now happily married. And it was just a delightful time to be with them. They were learning all the way through and I was enjoying seeing what God was working into their lives. And I was able to participate in their wedding as well. Each of the subjects that I mention is much larger and more important than the few statements that I make would indicate. Fortunately, there are excellent Christian books on all these subjects that can help us to get up to speed. First of all, let me mention the meaning of love. I've already mentioned that the popular conception of love as romance and sentiment is totally distorted in our culture. We need to keep in mind that the Bible usually deals with the verb to love in the imperative mood, mo mood, imperative mode, I'm sorry, or as a testimony to God's faithful devotion to his people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There wasn't anything appealing about this world. It was the love that was in God's heart that moved him to action. Husbands, love your wives. He didn't say, if you like what they do. Love them as Christ loved the church. My brother's talk about that last night was very clear. Falling in love is a very modern and completely inadequate concept, no matter how delightful it feels. A pastor of many years and very dear friend of mine said with candor, I could fall in love every day with a different woman. Although he was completely faithful to his wife of many years, he was just simply being candid, honest. If you can fall in love so easily, you can fall out of love just as easily. True love is something you do more than something you feel. We need to inform ourselves of what the scriptures say about love. The book of Hosea is a good place to start. My goodness, that will shake you up. We need to inform ourselves of what the scriptures say about love rather than draw our concepts from TV or the movies. Hollywood has long since proven that it doesn't have the slightest notion of the true meaning of love. Love is devotion, is dedication and sacrifice. It is commitment, it's action, it's care for others, it's selfless service. We would uh, we would have to look far and wide to find a better definition of love than the one the Apostle Paul gave us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Another topic that we need to discuss with those who plan to be married is purpose and projects in marriage. When we've asked many couples why they wanted to get married, the response too often was because we love each other. But God's purpose for marriage goes far beyond personal attraction. 
God brings us together because it's not good for us to be alone. Human beings are social creatures and need to socialize in order to achieve proper development of their personality and character, especially men. Men do not socialize well until they get married, and then they feel like they've gotten tied down. But that's necessary if we're going to learn to be social beings with a proper attitude toward others. God wants us to be involved in raising families, for he has purposed to have a very large family of many children, all of which are to be like Jesus. My wife and I married each other to honor God and to serve him together wherever he might lead us. And our love has lasted already over 50 years and going strong. Young people especially need to explore their sense of purpose in marriage. What are their goals? What do they want to accomplish? All of us need to project our lives into the future, even when we cannot predict the future. Such projection motivates us to work and to sacrifice in order to achieve worthy goals. Let's talk about realistic expectations. When a newly married man was asked by friends on the job how he was enjoying married life, he responded, as Brother Webb mentioned today, my wife treats me like a Grecian god. Every day she offers me burnt sacrifices. Most of us embark upon marriage with many dreams and fantasies. Of course, it's impossible to realize all those dreams. But it certainly helps to have some realistic expectations about marriage and to be aware that some conflict and adjustment is inevitable. How should I prepare for married responsibilities? What is expected of me? What does my spouse expect? What do I expect of my spouse? Talking about such matters can help us to handle the realities we cannot avoid. Then what about our varied backgrounds? Not everyone enters marriage with the same experience. A difficult or dysfunctional parental home can distort our approach to marriage. If we did not witness a mom and dad who had a loving and devoted relationship, we may not know how to build such a relationship in our own marriage. We also marry with cultural differences and varied tastes, with different habits and different diets. Words sometimes have different meanings. Even the tone of voice of our mate can indicate to us something never intended. That's the reason why in the period of courtship we need to converse extensively about such matters and get acquainted with each other and with the families of each other as much as possible. This may be a little distasteful, but it's going to become inevitable after marriage. The fewer surprises we face after marriage, the better. This matter of coming from a home or not, whose parents showed such love for each other, I assumed that well after 
my wife and I were married, that everybody had had, I literally, I expect everybody had the, more or less the same advantage that I had had. Uh, there were three of us, brothers and sisters, I'm the oldest, my brother and sister. We had, a, had very loving parents, loving to us, although my father was, a very, uh, was very clear in his authority, a man of very strong character, convinced that it was his responsibility to build character into his children. I never heard my father raise his voice, my mother, never, much less threaten or lay a hand upon her. And I just assumed that the rest of the families lived the same way. Until years later in Argentina, we had a, a number of single young people living with us. All of them were of adult age, but they were single. We had as many as six living with us at one time besides our family. One day, they were talking. One of the young men started telling us how he and his brother had decided they were going to take the life of their father because he was a drunk and had no mercy on the family. Every Friday when he would get his pay, he would stop off at the boliche, as they say in Spanish, and uh, fill his stomach with liquor spent most of his money there, then got home late, took the food away from his children, and they'd seen him over and over again grab a big butcher knife and run the whole family out, the house, out of the house with threats. And two of the sons had decided they wouldn't put up with that any longer. They began to plot how they were going to kill their own father. To hear a young person talk like that was totally foreign to me. I could not imagine any son wanting to kill his father. Until the day my father died at 87 years of age, he was one of the most admirable men I ever met in my life. I've thanked him over and over again for every time he whipped me, and I got a lot of whippings. I was a very strong-willed child. But my dad was constantly encouraging me if he was also constantly disciplining me. I say constantly, frequently. Dad's idea of success was you can become president of the United States. And he told us that over and over again, all three of us, you can become president of the United States. He was always encouraging us. And to hear a young person say they were thinking of taking their life of their father was more than I could handle. And it wasn't long before one of the young ladies now, this is the small group that lived in their home. Told how she and her brother had begun to plot to take the life of their father, who was also a man who drank a lot, would come home before he could get into the house. He would fall in the ditch out in front of their house. Time and again, the brother and sister, the, the son and daughter of this man, had had to go and drag their father out of the ditch and into the house with all the shame that this meant for them before their neighbors. And they decided to take the life of their father. Fortunately, in both cases, these young people got converted before they could carry out their plot. Thank God. Jesus makes a difference. What about past mistakes? Not all of us go into marriage clean. Most of us take some shame with us. 
some bad mistakes. Some of us bring to marriage bad experiences from the past that we would rather forget. However, it's better to get those things out into the open prior to marriage. When such things are discovered after marriage, it's hard to avoid the sense of having been deceived. I counsel couples to talk honestly together before marriage about any significant relations they've had in the past with others, especially regarding sexual experience. The thought is a bit scary to some, but I tell them it's better to face it before marriage than afterwards. Anything else that could bring a chill into your relations or expectations should be dealt with honestly and transparently before tying the knot. It's always much more of a shock to discover that you unwittingly married an unknown person. We had a young man who lived with us, a very fine young man from Paraguay, a good carpenter. I helped him get on his feet and start work on his own instead of working for a pittance for others. And they, he fell in love with a young lady from the church and they decided to get married. And I, I talked to him and counseled him about that. And um, he discovered in the, ter- the, the uh, course of their conship, uh, courtship that she had had relations with others. She had been something of a hippie and, and uh, had uh, had relations with other men. And this really um, chagrined him. And I asked him, have you ever had relations with another woman? Yes. Then why should you be ashamed about her? You need to confess the same thing to her. But in Latin America, the machos feel that it's all right for them, but not for the women. But they're having relations with women. And uh, he thought about that a while and decided he'd better take it to count, take it to heart. What about relations with in-laws? I often tell prospective brides and grooms that their proposed marriage is not only between the two of them, but between their families in a very real sense. If that thought shakes you up, think it through carefully before you marry. Certainly, I'm not going to marry my mother-in-law, but I am going to find that she is quite involved in my future life with my spouse, even if only as a reflection seen in my wife. Better to cultivate harmonious relations with future in-laws than to pretend they have nothing to do with your own plans. Before marriage, the prospective bride and groom should talk seriously about relations with each other's family and what they expect after marriage. What precautions should they take to avoid pitfalls and unpleasant confrontations? These are matters they need to discuss at length to see if they can come to an understanding between them. And then concerning raising children, children can be long anticipated with joy or come as an almost total surprise. In any case, they belong to the family and must be integrated and cared for. 
Of course, this caring only just begins with the nine-month pregnancy. You're in for the long haul when you have a child. You're going to have many long years to ponder the meaning of raising your children. I sometimes marvel that God could have planned these things in such a way that people with no previous experience in raising children should be given such an awesome responsibility so early in their marriage. Perhaps it is a divine testimony to the fact that anyone can learn, so as well as to the fact that the acceptance of responsibility is a major requisite to being able to handle the task before us. We all need to understand that the raising of children is probably the single most important job we shall ever face in our life. If we mess up here, there are few chances to correct our errors later on. Consequently, prior to marriage, we need to face up to the issue and not simply assume that we can manage the whole process to fit into our overall scheme of things. It just doesn't work that way. Children are going to mess up your schemes over and over and over again. Don't worry about it, though everybody else is facing the same thing. It's part of life. And it's important for us to adjust to those situations. How about resolving problems? I, I incorporated this concept many years ago just out of our own experience. All of us need to develop the art of problem solving. I have been surprised, really surprised, to see men of 30, 40, 50 years who don't know how to solve problems. They just tear their hair or scream or shut up or leave the place. That doesn't solve anything. When you come back, it's only worse. I've often counseled young people in love to not make serious plans for marriage until they've had a chance to face some real difficulties in their own relationship. They will definitely face them after marriage. Better to have an idea of how to handle and resolve problems before they arise. I'd say don't even set a date for your proposed marriage until you have some run-ins, some uh, head-banging, you know? I'm not saying you should try to find them. I'm just saying if you talk together enough, if you work together enough, you're going to find some things that you disagree about. Well, find out how to deal with that sort of thing. If you don't know, ask someone who does. But work on it as that's part of the training for marriage. We're all slow to recognize that we ourselves are usually the biggest problem. Until we face up to our own flawed character and personality, we will almost certainly blame our spouse for most of the problems. That's not the way to find harmony in marriage. <laughs> I used to think, and I think some people have told me, you've got to be very um, forthright in marriage. Um, I've learned that it's a whole lot better to go around the mulberry bush. 
I don't mean to hide anything, but I mean learn tact. Learn to be careful. Don't deal with your spouse as if he or she belonged to you. That's not the way it works. Be gracious. Be kind. Be patient. Take your time. You've got all the time in the world. Move slowly into these matters, but work them out. Then let's talk about sexual relations and the honeymoon. Too many people get married so they can have legitimate and unlimited sex. What a surprise they're in for. Sex is wonderful. And sex can be really beautiful. But good sex does not happen automatically. All of us need to develop realistic expectations and a very real commitment to please our spouse. If you're the man, learn to please your wife. If you're the wife, learn to please your husband. That's essential. Don't look for your own satisfaction. Please her. In the end, you will be quite satisfied. But since sex, all of us need to develop a, a realistic expectation and a very real commitment to please our spouse. But since sex is so intimate, it's bound to touch every other facet of our lives. It takes time to achieve a healthy and happy sexual relationship. We need to treat it as something beautiful but delicate. It's very easy to offend our partner and difficult to mend those hurts. This is part of the reason why this subject needs to be broached in prenuptial counseling. Of course, it needs to be handled delicately and with good taste. Too often it becomes a bad joke. Let's keep it on a high plane and help prospective marriage partners develop a sense of the sanctity that such a relationship merits. The first night together and the honeymoon are subjects to be dealt with individually just prior to the marriage. I usually give instructions to the man and my wife to the woman. This makes it easier for them to ask questions and resolve their doubts. How important this issue is. It's so important for, for young people to get proper orientation. All the stuff they're seeing on TV and in the movies is only going to distort the whole picture. I tell young people, when you have relations together, always keep in mind it's only for the two of you. Never talk about it to anybody else unless you need counsel and then seek somebody who is in a position to help you and not spread it around. Only talk about it if you really need help. Don't tell your colleagues at work or at school. They, they won't understand. They won't know what to do with it. And you're going to be ashamed for having ever brought it up. Let's talk about spiritual and religious issues. Involvement in church for many is an escape route from an unhappy marriage. It should not and need not be so. Prior to marriage, the couple needs to converse at length about spiritual and religious issues and seek to have a clear understanding of what to expect 
of each other in such matters. They will be much happier if they move together in these matters. Larry Christensen has said that every Christian marriage is between three persons, a man, his wife, and Jesus Christ. This is more true than most people understand. God is a partner to our marriage, and it is he who seals the marriage covenant. He designed marriage as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for the rest of their lives. No one better than he can show us how to live out our marriage in harmony and with a clear sense of divine purpose. But perhaps no one marries with a full understanding of this fact. Thus we must learn and grow in our relationship with the Lord. A proper spiritual relationship with God and with each other is perhaps the best guarantee of a happy and lifelong marriage. My wife and I both know, and we knew before we were married, that both of us are more seriously committed to God than we are to each other. And we're committed to each other because we are committed to God. And over and over again, that has helped us through, through the different difficulties that have arisen in life. How about conversation? I have three more quick topics to mention. Conversation is the principal method we have for understanding each other. Thus, the tremendous importance of conversation in marriage. Have you ever met a couple that don't know how to talk with each other? They'll grunt. They'll look at each other, squint. But many people, many married couples don't know how to talk together. And so when they get mad, they just shut up. I know of married couples that will uh, throw silence at their partner for days on end. I cannot imagine that kind of a relationship. A lack of adequate conversation feeds illusions and fears. Without conversation, we do not really know whether we understand our partner or are being understood by him or her. In truth, conversation is much more than words. The old English meaning of conversation involved conduct, behavior, lifestyle. Perhaps we should try to recover much of that meaning. In his excellent book, The Five Love Languages, psychologist Gary Chapman refers to the different ways that we express our love and concern for others, especially between spouses. This has helped countless people to better understand their marriage partner and to communicate more effectively. I strongly recommend Gary Chapman's book, Five Love Languages, my wife and I have taught seminars on that in various occasions and in various countries. How about money? Disagreements over the way money is handled in a marriage can give way to strident arguments on the subject. Not everyone has been adequately prepared to wisely handle money prior to marriage, and varying habits can easily cause discord. More people divorce over money matters that any of us would like to admit. I've taught Bible courses for much of my life 
but only in the last several years have I seen the need to incorporate specific courses on how to manage your money in the home. It's a vitally important issue, especially in the current culture of buying everything on credit and maxing out credit cards. I'm not suggesting that we should include such a course in our marriage counseling sessions, but we certainly should give some guidelines and help others to know where they can get further information. Um, I adopted many years ago uh, the conviction to never buy on my credit card what I, what I didn't already have in the bank. In other words, the use of credit cards is a convenience. It's not a way to spend what you don't have. They can be very convenient, but they can put a weight about your neck that can destroy your marriage. And finally, the marriage ceremony. Most young brides have pretty clear ideas about what they want in their wedding. But few understand the wedding ceremony as a pastor does. Therefore, we need to inform them of some of the more important related matters and help them in the process of preparation. Again, the fewer the surprises, the better. I often tell prospective brides and grooms that they should leave to me anything unexpected that might happen, such as dropping the ring or someone getting sick in the midst of the ceremony. I've seen that happen. I remember one ceremony where the, the groom started weaving back and forth just about the time for the vows and then vomited on the pastor's suit. Then he fainted on the spot. I was in a wedding once where uh, just as the bride was putting the ring on her husband's finger, fell on the floor. And she slapped his hand. Or he slapped her hand. I forget what it was. I said, all right, don't worry about it. I'll take care of that. Bent down, picked up the ring, gave it back to them. Such things happen. And it should not be the job of those getting married to resolve such problems. The ceremony is usually the one time where all the wedding party is highly nervous and emotional because expectations are so high for this momentous event. Thus, the pastor's calm and deliberate manner can do much to put others at ease. Let me close with these remarks. Few things in our life are more important or have more lasting effects upon us than our marriage. Therefore, we need to approach it with reverence, sobriety, and deep commitment. God wants our marriage to succeed and bring us much satisfaction and realization. But it doesn't happen without careful planning and diligence. In our concern to stave off the specter of divorce in our society and in the church, one of the most important areas requiring our attention is adequate preparation of couples prior to their marriage. Some may come to the conclusion that they're not yet ready for marriage and will desist. But the rest will be grateful for the orientation received it puts them in better condition to handle the problems that inevitably arise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Marriage was your idea. Marriage is not one of various options. It was your idea. You saw that it wasn't good for us to be alone. You understood that there are some things we can learn only in an intimate relationship. You knew that our character needed to be formed through such a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. But Lord, we're learning that this matter is so vital, so important, that it can bring us to experience the closest thing to heaven on earth or the closest thing to hell on earth. We need you, Lord. We need understanding of your ways. And we pray that not only in our marriages, but in the lives that we touch, especially of those who are not yet married, help us, Lord, to so live before them and when we have opportunity to so counsel them that they, they might move with correction, faith, grace, know your will and do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.